Welcome to the Wise Women Diaries podcast. This is where shame and victimhood die. I am a woman that questions everything, so this podcast is a reflection of that. Here, we speak on non-mainstream perspectives, like personal growth in motherhood and relationships, awareness of the ego versus the soul, the voice of fear versus intuition, We discuss what it looks like to step into your power and step out of the medical paradigm. That's why I'm obsessed with interviewing women who trust their bodies and their babies in home birth and free birth and their wild journey from maiden to mother. Ultimately, this podcast is about women taking radical responsibility for their life, shedding victimhood for good. But let's give a round of applause for the universe because Holly, this interview was not planned until two days ago. And I had a podcast interview change from today to tomorrow. And you messaged me your story. I'm like, oh my gosh, I need you on here. And I'm like, when are you available? You said Friday. I'm like, I am too. Boom, let's do this. And you just slid (laughs) right into, um, it was just too perfect. But me and Holly do know each other from our hometown because we played club volleyball together. And so we have this hometown connection, uh, which I love. Holly, what about doing an intro for the audience? I love when I'm listening to a podcast and a woman says a little bit about their past or where they grew up. All right, let's do that. So like Leah said, we kind of know each other from our hometown. So grew up in a really small town in the upper pin peninsula of Michigan. I currently reside in South Carolina. Um, I actually am a pharmacist. I am a practicing pharmacist. So I have a doctorate degree. So I do have maybe a slightly different perspective on a lot of the birthing stuff because I did go through that training in the medical system and, you know, did get that indoctrination. And I can see how I was falling prey to that. Um, Aside from being a pharmacist, which is second to everything else in my life. Um, I am a mother to three boys. Um, they are seven, five, and two. Um, and I just love living somewhere warm, probably like Leah does compared to Michigan. So I am excited to be here today. Yeah, your story is so juicy for so many reasons. Like you are a pharmacist and you had two unmedicated hospital births. The fact that you are like a doctor of drugs yet chose unmedicated births and then your third birth is an unassisted home birth um dude that's just juicy (laughs) i love it yeah um but we have so much to talk about today so let's let's give this a go let's have you start i think you wanted to start with your own birth that you're with your mom yep so yeah we're gonna start all the way at the very beginning so my mom, when she was pregnant, you know, back in the 80s, I was actually due on December 27th, but I was not born until January 14th. So my mom went to, you know, like 42 and four, and she says no one ever said anything to her about getting an induction or anything to speed up labor or, you know, to get me to come out. So I think that really just highlights how much we've changed, even from 1988 to 2023. We know that hardly anybody would let let a mother go to 42 and four in any sort of a medical setting. As we know, that's 
perfectly normal physiological birth. But I just feel like that's an interesting point to start that I was born, quote, late. Um, my mom did have me naturally, you know, no drugs. She never even got oxytocin. She said she was so surprised when she heard how they give you oxytocin afterwards. And she's like, why would they ever do that? She's like, they never did that with any of my births. So that's just like really eye-opening how much it's changed in that time frame. Yeah, and I've heard from nurses in um, in the birthing center, hospital birthing centers that they don't ever see births without Pitocin. Yeah. Like that's, that's how common it is. Mm-hmm. That is yeah. crazy. So I just like to start there just to really highlight the change and how I luckily was born not on drugs, not with anything in my system, just, you know, naturally, you know, my mom said I came out, my I passed my meconium immediately on to her and just that I was very an alert baby, you know, holding my head up really alert because I think I actually got to have a near physiological birth in the hospital. So the next point, part of my story that I really want to highlight, now we're jumping ahead a little bit, and this is actually something that was a repressed memory for me, but I'm going to talk about this in more of a chronological order versus how it came up for me. So this memory came up after my first birth. Um, I went to a pediatrician, probably a checkup appointment when I was 11 years old. And for some reason, I, I don't remember the conversation leading up to it, but I do remember the, it was a female pediatrician, but that doesn't make this better or, you know, any less traumatic for me. Um, I remember her saying, okay, well, we want to do an exam now, take your pants off. And I remember looking at my mom being 11, like, are, are you sure? Is this okay? And my mom said, yeah, you know, it's okay. Like, and laying there on the bed. And I, I can imagine that feeling of her touching my yoni at 11 and feeling so uncomfortable and not saying anything. And obviously from my mom's perspective, you know, she just felt like she was doing what she needed to do. The doctor said this. I remember the doctor saying, oh, yep, she's going to start her period soon. And just, I just, that's like in, really kind of in my brain now. And I'm still trying to work through that memory and like how I really process that. So it just shows that's how young they start doing this to us. At 11 years old, I didn't even have my period yet. And they weren't giving me a pap, but they were examining me and just terrible. <laughs> That is truly wild. The fact that the first person to touch your privates was a doctor in that manner. Yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah. yeah and it's and a very important story because these are the types of memories that come up in women's births and their birth stories and what they're trying to mentally and men uh, emotionally handle in postpartum. So this is why you're bringing it up now because it it's a repressed memory and it comes up after your first birth. Yeah. So like I said, wow. I mean, I don't feel like, you know, it's not something I'm like thinking about every day where it's so traumatic. Where I can't, you know, move on with my life. But, you know, thinking about it even right now as I talk about it, not like I'll, I won't get so upset that I'll be crying, but I, I just can feel myself internally right now. My nervous system is feeling a little dysregulated, even just speaking about that experience because I haven't fully worked through that. So that's something I'm continuing to process and, you yeah. know, try to, try to let go wow. of. Yeah. Thank you. Um, I'm so curious. So then you're in medical school, you become a pharmacist, you get pregnant with your first baby. What makes you want an unmedicated birth when you're a pharmacist? So it's funny because 
during like one of my last years of school, one of my, one of my classmates got pregnant and they were, she was talking about like going to have the baby and she did, you know, she did the whole thing, the induction, the epidurals and all this. And she was just in my class. I mean, obviously I knew her, but I was kind of talking to one of my good friends and we were talking about getting pregnant and having babies. And she's like, always said, she doesn't want to be pregnant because pregnant bellies are disgusting. And she would never do that. And it was like just a weird dynamic with whatever she had going on. She had her own issues she needed to work through clearly, but she she's just always like, I don't understand why anybody would not have an epidural. I mean, how easy just lay in the bed and then they just have you push a baby out. And I hadn't really thought about it, I guess, because we don't learn a lot about like an epidural. I mean, we learn about the route and we learn about obviously like fentanyl and the ropivacaine that's in a uh, epidural that they build for you. But even in that moment, as she said that I said, why would you not want to feel anything? That was like really the first time I was like, why would you want to dissociate that much from an experience? And I mean, I hadn't experienced it. And maybe because my mom talked about her birth because all of hers were unmedicated, you know, like she never talked about birth as being like this absolutely terrible, painful thing. We didn't talk about it a ton, but if she talked about our births, it was very positive. So maybe that's why I was like, it's not that big of a deal. So that was really my first seed that I was like, I'm not going to do that. Um, and also, obviously, knowing what I know about drugs, fentanyl crosses the placenta. I have heard many people when I talk about an unmedicated birth um, and, you know, why I don't want to get an epidural because I don't want my baby being born and being exposed. And they get very defensive. They go, well, my doctor told me that fentanyl doesn't affect the baby. It doesn't cross if you get it in an epidural. It only does if you get it in your blood. And I'm like, that's not true. I'm sorry you were lied to. But fentanyl does cross the placenta and it provides exposure to your baby. So that was really kind of, again, that first jump to me, really second guessing even before I got pregnant. Wow. So then where was your consciousness at the time? Because your first two were unmedicated in the hospital, but then your third is at home. So Mm -hmm. was, was a home birth not even on your radar? Was it something you would not even entertain? Where was your awareness with that? I guess I had never really heard about anybody having a home birth. It really wasn't on my radar at all that that was even something that was an option. So when I did become pregnant for the first time, I was like, okay, tip, you know, I go to the OB, that's what I do. But then they had a birth center within the hospital wall. So they had two sections on the labor and delivery. One was specifically for the planned unmedicated births. And then there was everyone who's going to get induced and go and do their C-section. So they did try to separate them. Um, But I came in and I was like, you know, I want to see a midwife. I know I want to do the unmedicated side. So part of that um, with the hospital that I was at, they did birth education classes that you could sign up for free, but they had an additional class that you could take that was natural coping mechanisms for those who wanted to have an unmedicated birth. So I mean, to me, I still think that that was nice that they offered that. I guess they did have some you know, different techniques. They talked about positioning and all that kind of stuff. But even in that natural class, they just kept talking about, but when it's too much and you want the epidural and, you know, when this happens and we need to start Pitocin and it was all, it's all preparing you mentally to go through the system and get all the things. So they're already telling you, you know, this is going to happen when we see this and this is going to happen. Like it's, it's no big deal. Everyone does it. And I left those birth classes going, wow, I thought I was going to feel better and I feel worse about what is about to happen <laughs> at the hospital. Oh my gosh. Yeah, <laughs> so let's, let's I- hear your, yeah, let's hear your first birth. 
Yep. So then I, I went down a route where I started doing a little bit with hypnobirthing and that helped me mentally prepare myself to kind of get ready to do this naturally. And I did kind of know the coercion that was going to come in. Again, I have been through training. They don't tell you to obviously at any point, like lie to people, but we do get frameworks on. This is how you explain things to people by giving the facts, but a little more loosely. So we move into the birth. Yep. Pregnancy is completely uneventful. Um, I felt great the entire time. I'm working as a pharmacist. I'm standing for 12 to 13 hours a day working in the retail pharmacy up until the day that I give birth. Um, I also just want to note that I had, you know, I did the vaginal ultrasound at 10 weeks, but the doctor I had actually was, we did it at the bedside and she really only kind of put the probe in just checked that she could see placement in a heartbeat and then was done. It was like under three minutes. And then even my anatomy scan was only like 20 minutes. And in the time I was like feeling really disappointed because I like wanted to see my baby and all my friends who were pregnant were like going and getting all these ultrasounds all the time. And I was like, Oh, I only got to see my baby for like 20 minutes. But really that's like a blessing when I really think about it now, but it just shows how much you're like, I, I need to see my baby all the time. <laughs> so just through, te- through technology. Through technology. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so my first birth then, um, again, I worked the day that I went into labor, 12 hours standing, got home, went to bed, woke up at around 1130 and was like, this is intense. So I was like, I got to get up, let my husband sleep, labored all night, all the way into the next day at around eight o'clock in the morning. We said, let's go to the hospital. Let's go check in or to the birth center, I guess, within the hospital. So I get there the nurse hooks me up to see like, Oh, do you have contractions and stuff? And she's like, Oh yeah, they're like three minutes apart. Let's get you into the triage room. The doctor's going to be in in just a minute. So I get in there, you know, me and my husband, we're like all excited, like, Ooh, this is really happening. And all of a sudden then this woman walks in and this young man who's like my age or younger, she walks in says, I'm Dr. So-and-so I'm the resident that's covering today. Lay back and spread your legs. I don't know who this male is that she just brought into the room. She does not ask if I consent to have this person in here, nothing. And I'm like, what? But still being in my little good girl self at that moment and not being in my my mother energy, I just laid back and I let her do the exam. And then she's doing the exam, it's taking a while. And I'm like, I'm thinking, what is happening? And all of a sudden she, you know, takes her hand out and she, she looks at the nurse that's in there and she goes, yeah. I don't know. I mean, it's like maybe a three, maybe a four. How about you check? And the nurse looks at her with these like wide open saucer eyes. And she goes, you're the doctor. You are supposed to know this. And she goes, oh, oh yeah. Um, you're a four. And I was like, what "What is happening? (laughs) She's like, So we'll just monitor you a little bit in the triage room. Just make sure your contractions are steady. And then while we get the room ready, I'll come back. They leave. Me and my husband are like, WTF is going on right now. I like was feeling just really, really uncomfortable. Within 15 minutes after that, I did not have a single contraction. They came back and they're like, you're not in labor. We're going to send you home. But I had went from contractions three minutes apart to absolutely nothing. And I believe that that was my body being so wise in saying this person cannot be at your birth. They are not safe. They do not respect your boundaries. You got to go. So that was just crazy. (laughs) A literal threat to you. Mm -hmm. Because 
spread your legs. Yeah. Be the good girl. I don't have to say anything. I don't have to really, no pleasantries, just that's it. So that was, that really was another really big piece in me being like, this is ridiculous that I am doing this. So needless to say, went back home, rested, got my labor restarted knew I needed to stay at home for 12 hours because that's how long their shifts were. I knew that. I knew I needed to come on the night shift and I couldn't go back to have that same doctor be there. So I stayed at home until 8, 8.15 p.m. because I had to wait 12 hours and then went back to the hospital because <laughs> I was like, I can't oh, go there. Wow. Even though my husband was like, can we go? Because he was getting uncomfortable with how uncomfortable I seemed you know it it can be hard for the men to watch you in a state of discomfort even though I kept saying it's fine like it's okay so we go back to the hospital um again I'm in that more natural birthing unit they do have tubs um they don't really have birthing tubs they more have laboring tubs but I'm I I call myself a land birther anyways I like to labor in the water but I like to birth on the land um so it was fine you know, they were really great. They actually, they didn't make me do any monitors. They let me do what I wanted in the bathroom. They were really non-invasive. They, they didn't do very many vaginal checks or cervical checks. Actually, once I got there, they did one when I first got there, but then they kind of just let me do my own thing. Um, it progressed. I was in labor for a while. I think I just couldn't let go enough to let him fully descend. And obviously with the first baby, I didn't have as early of a fetal ejection reflex, just having multiple births now, you know, really knowing the feelings, you don't really know, you know, what's going to happen that very first time. So I'm, I'm coming up now. It's midnight. I had been laboring since midnight the day before I have not slept at all. So I'm getting exhausted. And um, my the main OB and the resident come in and they just say, we noticed your waters haven't broken yet. You are dilated to a nine. They said, we do not, I know you said you don't want any interventions. They were very respectful. No one ever asked me about pain meds. No one ever asked me to do anything there, which was surprising. They very much honored my birth plan. So for a hospital birth, actually, this was a pretty great experience. Um, and they just said, if you want, we can slow, you know, do a quick release of your waters and you will likely have this baby within 30 minutes because you are so close and just because you're so tired. And I said, you know, I said, can you leave the room? Me and my husband talked about it. And I just said, I am utterly exhausted. I need to have this baby. And maybe I did need some saving. Again, I'm still kind of in that mating energy, but I agreed to let them slight slow rupture my membrane. So they didn't do a huge gush. They just did a slow leak, but that you could tell that difference as soon as that water started to release. And I could feel that head directly coming down onto the cervix. It was, he was born within 30 minutes of them breaking the water. Like they said, the nice thing about it as well is, so my water breaks, you know, it's all ramping up. I just instinctively start pushing. I don't even realize that there's other people in the room, but my husband mentions that. So I'm pushing and he said, they stood that resident in that OB stood at the foot of your bed and they said, we don't need to tell her anything. She knows what to do. And they did not say anything to me. The only thing she said once was because I was like, I wanted him out so bad. And I was pushing in between contractions. And she just said, Holly, you're tired. She says, you need to let your body help you try to save the pushes for when the contractions are there. So I did. And I was able to push him out. I'm very lucky. All of my babies have been 
born in less than 10 minutes from when I first start pushing to when they emerge. So this was my longest one at about eight and a half to nine minutes. But I just really respect that OB allowing me to do that. That is almost unheard of. And, you know, he was born. Um, the, the only bad thing, I guess, was they said I was bleeding a little more than they wanted to. And did I know if that was true or not true? But I was just so happy to have my baby that they, you know, they hung Pitocin and said it was to help with my bleeding. So, you know, that's really the biggest part that I really wish I wasn't exposed to during that birth. But that was the only thing that really I had that whole time. So that's birth one. Wow. I am always so surprised when women have unmedicated births in hospitals because the drugs are right there, right? Mm -hmm. So it sounds like your staff was so supportive because if you had different staff that kept asking you if you wanted drugs, like that would have been interesting, right? Yeah. Because at one point, now that I'm talking about it, I do remember before my water breaking and it was so intense and I was so tired. And I remember looking at my husband once because at this point I was so tired. I couldn't even like soothe myself by standing. I needed to like lay and kneel in the bed, which probably also stalled my labor. But I looked at him and I said, I see why people get an epidural. Like in that moment, I said, I can see why somebody would get an epidural, but I was like, I'm not going to do it. And he was like, good. (laughs) So, but like it came to my mind for a second, but I'm, I'm very type A. I'm like, I said, I'm going to do this. I'm going to do this. (laughs) I was just going to ask if it's a personality trait. (laughs) Yep. It is. (laughs) Sounds like it. That's amazing. Yeah. Let's hear Mm -hmm. about, so your second birth then is three, four years later. How many years? Two years later. Oh, two. Okay. Mm-hmm. Yeah, my first two are almost two years exactly um, apart. And so second birth, we're now somewhere different. We're in South We're in South Carolina now for this birth. But because of that experience with like being in that hospital for, you know, five hours and not being, you know, trying to labor there and people being there, even though they were really respectful, I was like, I really don't want to do that. Like, so I was already getting closer to like, I should just probably do this by myself. But again, I still don't really have home birth on my radar or that that's something that we do. Obviously free birth was probably happening, but it was so, I mean, this is 2018. So I know that's like a, not that it was new people doing it, but like, you know, consciously for a lot of people to know. Um, So I just said, we're going to labor at home as long as possible. So that birth, um, again, when he was born at 39 and five, um, I did that day. I worked the day before. Um, then the day I went in labor, I actually had an appointment with my OB. My parents were coming into town in two days because they were going to like help with the baby. So she asked if I wanted a membrane sweep and I agreed to that. And, you know, like thinking back, it's like, I shouldn't have done it, but I so wanted to control that situation and be like, have the baby while my parents are going to be there Do help me. So I consented to that. That was pretty much my biggest intervention of this labor. You know, looking back, would I have done that knowing what I know now? Definitely not. But I was where I was in the moment. Um, The membrane sweep helped or I don't know, maybe I would have went into labor either way. You never know. Um, but I did go into labor then later that day. Actually, I went into labor at 530. Um, I'm cooking dinner and like leaning on the counter and saying like, I need to be able to put my son to bed. I can't go to the hospital. Um, so got my oldest down to bed. Um, we left the house at like 915 because I was like, I can't take it anymore. We get to the hospital. My husband is trying to bring me in the emergency room 
entrance and I was like, I have to stop. I'm in the parking lot on hands and knees trying to breathe through a contraction. So he's trying to go and get someone to come and help him get me in. The nurses come out and they're like, oh my gosh, she's on the ground. And they're like screaming because they think I'm hurt. And I'm like, no, no, I'm fine. It's okay. I'm just like, you know, working through my contraction. Again, because they probably have never seen a woman give birth naturally or anything have be that far along in labor. Um, I get upstairs to the labor and delivery unit. This is a hospital that doesn't have OBs there 24 seven. They have to call them in. So we had to wait, like it, it took her about 20 minutes to get there, but the nurses, I think were getting nervous because he was like coming. <laughs> so the OB gets there and she comes into the room and they're like, she's going to have the baby. And she's like, she just got here. There's no way she's going to have the baby. And they're like, she's having the baby. And I'm on all fours at this point. She's like, I need to do a, I need to do a cervical check. I was like, no, you don't. The baby's coming out. And she's like, I need to check you. And I was like, well, I'm not laying on my back. And she's like, yeah, you are. I said, I'm not. If you're going to check me, you're checking me right now how I am on all fours. So she goes to attempt to start to check me. She can't even find my vagina. She's reaching up by my clitoris and like all by my labia. And I turn around like, what are you doing? She's like, well, I can't examine you in this type of position. And I was like, because you don't need to examine me. The baby's coming. And she's like, it is not. And I roll onto my back and I start pushing and she gets down to the foot of the bed. And she's like, oh my gosh, she's crowning. She's like, somebody put a gown on me. My water explodes. It like blows all over her. The baby comes out and she literally just like grabs and just puts him on my chest. Yeah. And she like, was like, does Whoa. not believe you. Like, like no. it's your body. You're not on pain meds. You're yeah. not. The baby's not being born. <laughs> I cannot. That was nuts. So it was like nuts. And then it was like, I actually, after that birth, I, um, oh, whatever. We know I spent that night and then they made me stay the second night, even though I was like, I want to go home. And they're like, no, you have to stay. So-and-so has to check you out and all this stuff. And I should have just said, forget it and just yeah. made and left but I was like fine whatever being my little still kind of in my good girl a little bit saying fine you, I'll stay tonight yeah do you think it was insurance because insurance sometimes you have to stay two days for it to be covered or something like that do you know it could have been I guess I never really asked I was just annoyed because I wanted to go home to my older yeah. son I had never spent a night away from him in two years and now here I am and I'm like you know, I put, I put him to bed the night I went into labor. So I felt like I didn't stay it away from him because he didn't know I was gone because he was already sleeping. So it was like really like sad for me. I was like, I don't want to spend a night away from him though. I like to spend my nights with him. Um, but you can tell how fast my labor was and how unprepared the OB was because um, two days postpartum, I went to use the bathroom at home and I passed a blood clot almost the size of a baseball. Like I sat down to go to the bathroom and I could like, it felt like something was coming out of me. And I looked down and it was like this huge clot and there was just blood like pouring down my legs. So I went to the hospital to make sure that everything was okay. Cause this is not even like just after where I'm bleeding, like this was a lot. So they went in and they did an exam. They think what actually happened, it's, it's fairly rare. And I can't remember the name, but it's, um, where your placenta where your placenta detaches from your uterus it's almost like your uterus didn't realize the placenta isn't there so it keeps putting blood supply to that connection point and then it just like kind of released that clot off the wall of my uterus and that's really what I had passed so the bleeding actually started to dissipate by the time I got to the hospital um, so it was an emergency but when the doctor went to the um, emergency room doctor went to look at my chart he was like 
there's nothing in your chart really. It just says like baby born at this time. He says, it doesn't say anything about your birth or anything. And I said, yeah, because I showed up and had the baby in like 20 minutes. And he's like, I've never seen a note like that. That's awesome. So in the second birth, do you know if they gave you Pitocin and you didn't know, or you, it was completely no drugs? Um, the second birth is the one where I feel like, I I don't know if abuse is the right word, but they actually hung Pitocin without even asking me at all. They did. Mm -hmm. Wow. So, you know, I had consented to having a saline lock when I came in because again, I was trying to like kind of choose my battles on what I was going to like maybe fight them for when I got there. I said, sure, fine, whatever, put the heparin or put the saline lock in my hand. I should also add, while they were putting my lock in, the nurse was so bad at doing a blood stick. I was bleeding all over the floor because she couldn't do it. She had to stick me like four times. My husband looked at her and said, what are you doing to her? She's bleeding everywhere. But that's another aside on how they abuse you in all in all capacities at the hospital. Yeah, but, it, but it's a very important story because women have to know that they can say no to that IV lock. Mm-hmm. And... and when you have it in your arm, they drug you without your consent, which is what happened yes. to you. Bingo. So I would not consent to that. Looking back now, you know, they said, well, it's in case of an emergency. So, you know, again, with my medical training, I understand there can potentially be an emergency. I'm like, nothing's hanging. I'm going to recognize if they hang something and I'm going to say something. But they take advantage of you being in that other realm postpartum right after having that baby and just doing things to you without you even realizing it. So I remember looking over and being like, I want this IV out of my line, out of my hand. It's really uncomfortable. I'm trying to nurse and hold my baby. And they're like, well, we can't take it out because you have to finish your oxytocin. I said, what oxytocin? And they're like, well, yeah, we had to hang it after you had the baby. I said, why? Oh, we'll see. You don't bleed. And I was like, well, take it out now. And they're like, well, you have to let the bag finish. I said, no, I don't. I said, I want it stopped now. I want this taken out. It's uncomfortable. I don't need that. So, I mean, it was almost a 500 milliliter bag was almost completely empty at this point. So it was, I already had gotten the whole thing, but I like, I didn't even realize they didn't even ask me if that was okay to start pumping my body full of drugs. That's actually crazy. And it happens all the time. But what's crazy is that you purposely want an unmedicated birth and they don't let it happen because they hung Mm -hmm. drugs in and they put it into your hand post-birth but still now drugs that you didn't consent to that you didn't want in you are in you because they don't respect you enough to ask and it happens all the time so many women don't even know they got pitocin post-birth until they uh get their chart and look in it yeah mm-hmm. oh but yeah the yeah postpartum, think... the postpartum period with hospital births a lot of women you know are so in another world that they don't even know how badly the placenta is being yanked out and that's another moment i think where health professionals just take advantage of a woman trying to lock eyes with their new baby other stuff is going down if I was going to give like advice specifically around that is, and you're going to be, you, you decide you think you want to have a hospital birth and attempt to be unmedicated, you need to be very clear that unmedicated does not just mean the epidural. And I think that is the perception of the OB and the labor and delivery nurses is when you say unmedicated, you only mean the epidural. You don't mean I do not want 
any medications. And it's sad that you have to say that, but if there's any women listening that do plan to go to the hospital for, you know, feeling like that's the best option for you, you need you need to be very clear with every single thing you do not want. Yeah, thank you for that distinction because I agree. And the thing with drugs is the Pitocin, the thing that I say all the time is it's so strange how Pitocin is given for hemorrhage, but the adverse effect of Pitocin is hemorrhage. So, you know, you don't know. We'll never know if the baseball size clot that came out of you was Pitocin induced because you had drugs in your system. We'll never know. Exactly. I would. Yeah, that's that's really true. Actually, I never really thought about the Pitocin causing it other than the fact that you know, I got nothing, which we'll talk about with my third birth. And but postpartum, I bled more after the two labors where I had Pitocin than I did at home when I didn't like my, you know, my Lokia after was done within less than a week with my home birth, where the other two I was bleeding for almost three weeks afterwards. I mean, not heavy, heavy, but like I was still having to wear my adult diapers and my big, huge pads because I was still bleeding. So that was really you know, they say, like you said, they say it helps with the bleeding, but I would argue it actually caused me to bleed more. Yeah, that's super insightful. I'm so happy you brought that up because obviously it can be individual, um, but you have a very clear path where those two births were no epidural, but Pitocin. So actually there was drugs, but not that you wanted it, but Mm -hmm. you were in in the environment where that's where they specialize. They specialize in drugs. So then where does your consciousness change to then home birth gets on the map? And also like, I don't know, do you want to kind of say about your um, spiritual growth that maybe led Mm -hmm. you there? Because you have that. Yeah, I think it was kind of after that second birth. And I started to kind of get into listening to podcasts and getting on Instagram more and really starting to follow the accounts that were talking about spirituality and you know your higher self or you know your intuition things that I hadn't really heard before and I was like kind of like addicted like what's the next podcast what's the next one that talks about stuff like this and I wasn't in like the birth and health realm but just overall your nervous system regulation you know how anxiety kind of manifests itself and it's you know it's not a problem like listening to that so I started to like make these transitions as I just got more and more immersed in trying to learn as much as I can, you know, getting some of the Joe Dispenza books, you know, breaking the habit of being yourself and really kind of learning that mind body connection that I always knew was there, but really diving into that, you know, full on was kind of a big moment. And then just really realizing that I, I have a strong um, sister wound, mother wound, I actually don't really have a lot of female friends right now. And I do believe it is because I have trouble trusting women, which I'll talk about a little bit with my birth. And that also streams down for my mom as well, not having a lot of friends and saying she has issues with trusting women. But that kind of all came full circle. Um, I get pregnant right after COVID. So I'm in the hospital. I'm during the, I'm during, during all the COVID things. I'm like, I'm all in on the masking and stuff, but I'm not all in on the vaccines and stuff. I'm kind of like all these experimental treatments and all the things I'm seeing happening in the hospital on a daily basis. And I'm kind of like, I I don't know if I trust like a lot of what's happening 
even in a place that I work all of the time. So really questioning the medical system overall and listening to myself and understanding that the body is knowledgeable. It knows how to heal and kind of moving on. So I get pregnant in... Hold on. 2020 was a defining moment for you to start opening yeah. your eyes? Okay. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Like in I really your saw... workplace? In mm-hmm. your workplace? Okay. Yep. I mean, everything, but just that herd mentality and the us versus them and the, you know, shaming of anyone who thought anything different than what was being said. And I was just kind of like, I see the devastating effects of COVID. You know, I was, I worked a shift one day where we had six patients die in four hours and the stress of coding and going to the codes and that just that whole environment. So I saw it can be serious, but I was like, But then I know a ton of people who have it and they're perfectly fine. So what is going on with this hysteria that is being created? And can we believe the narratives that are going on back and forth all over? So this is really, like I said, before I was starting to open up personally, but this is me really questioning a lot of my training, how they, again, get us to get people to give consent for vaccines and treatments and different things. So yeah, that really was a a really pivotal moment for me. So I get pregnant at the end of 2020, actually, I don't know, between Christmas and New Year's, probably 2020 to 2021 is when I get pregnant. Um, again, everything seems fine. But I again, I had I've been working on the spiritual stuff. And I had this my parents came down to visit and some things happened between me and my parents. And I had this I finally just said, I'm saying everything about my childhood that I am holding on to trauma wise, my parents fighting a lot when I was growing up and listening to that, them, you know, fighting downstairs and me crying alone upstairs in my bedroom and, you know, telling them that I don't blame them, but that all of this hurt me. And we really had a tough time. We didn't talk for almost two months, but that really, to me was really pushing me to look deeper and try to heal some of those, that mother wound that I had. And I think that really helped. And that really, after that, that's all of a sudden when, after, actually during that time period when I wasn't talking to my parents is when I found Free Birth Society. And I feel like I kind of was starting to see that around the same time you were as well. Cause it was like, you almost started sharing the content. I was like, this is, this is crazy. Cause like, I'm looking at this podcast too, before like you had shared it and stuff. Um, I know a lot of, you know, obviously free birth is becoming really popular, but that's when I really got into that. Um, I go to my 20 week ultrasound for, um, my third pregnancy and you know, they don't say the ultrasound text won't say anything. I get back to the room afterwards and this NP comes in, nurse practitioner for the practice comes in and she's like, yeah, I don't know. We saw something wrong on your baby scan. There's something wrong with the stomach. There's like a dark spot on there. Um, so I don't know. We'll have to just schedule a, a follow-up with maternal fetal medicine. And this is on a Friday. So she's like, I don't know. Maybe they'll call you next week, but I got to go. Cause I have another patient waiting and she just left. So she leaves me here with this like bomb, like something's wrong with my baby. No big deal. We'll just figure it out next week. So I'm like having a panic attack practically. Like you literally just told me something's wrong with my baby. And now you act like it's not a big deal and you leave. So I'm freaking out. I walk down to the neonatal office because, again, I work in the hospital. And I'm like, I need whatever appointment. I said, I work in this hospital. If you have anybody cancel, I will come down here with five minutes notice. I need an appointment immediately. So I was lucky. I got in that following Tuesday. Um, they have the neonatologist come and, you know, do uh, – sorry, my phone. Um, uh, neonatologist comes, does the scan, and looks. And she's like, yeah. 
I, you know, I don't really see anything wrong. You know, there's, there's this one spot and, you know, it could be um, cystic fibro, it could be a marker of cystic fibrosis. And I said, why would something on his stomach have to do with cystic fibrosis? She's like, well, I don't know. I think you should probably come back for at least two or three more scans. And then I was like, mm, okay. And then she also changes the topic and goes, and did you get your COVID vaccine yet? Because I don't see it in your chart. And I was like, no. And I was like, I'm not, I'm not getting the COVID vaccine, especially not when I'm pregnant. And she would not stop. We went on for 10 minutes of her pushing this COVID vaccine on me. I was like, I'm not getting the vaccine. Can we please stop talking about it? I came here for this scan. And she was like, okay, well, I mean, if you don't have, if you're not vaccinated when you come into the hospital, then, you know, you're going to have to probably be on isolation. And I don't know if we're going to really let you have any, you know, guests or if your husband's going to be able to come in and like threatening me already at 20 weeks about what's going to happen in another 20 weeks if I don't do what they say. So I'm like, this and is ridiculous. you're a doctor in that hospital. Mm -hmm. Yeah. They don't care. <laughs> they don't care who you are. So also don't feel bad if you feel like they aren't respecting you because it doesn't matter who you are, what your training, what your education is, they will dis disrespect you all the same. It doesn't matter how much knowledge you have about the medical system. Yeah, yeah you just, not. yeah, it, I really like would have assumed doctors would at least treat each other with respect, but it's more so if you're not in alignment with the religion of science and mm -hmm. you are saying no, that's when you're dead to them. <laughs> you're not Pretty worthy much. of respect. Yeah. Yeah. Agree. So that's my, like, they schedule the next appointment. In the meantime, I'm like, what, what am I, what am I doing right now? Like, this is not in alignment with anything that I want to be doing. I'm already starting to understand the dangers of ultrasound. I'm like, I'm already, I'm already three ultrasounds or two ultrasounds in on this pregnancy. One being an hour, another being 40 minutes this is ridiculous. I'm not going to do this again. So I just call maternal and fetal medicine and I say, I'm canceling my appointment. They're like, well, you, you can't, you can't cancel your appointment. I said, yeah, I can't. I'm not coming back. I'm done. I'm not, I'm not, I'm not doing that anymore. There's nothing wrong with him. He's fine. And even if there is, what am I going to do about it now? I'm not going to terminate my pregnancy at 20 weeks. I'll deal with it when I, when he's born then, if there really is a problem. And you know, I, obviously hindsight. I wish I would have just said that after the first scan and not gone in for the second, but they give you that fear. And I, I needed the answer. I needed, I couldn't sit in that discomfort of not knowing if something was wrong with my baby or not. Yeah. And that is, that is um, a potential consequence of seeking that information tests, ultrasounds, there's consequence to everything. And mm -hmm. put, getting that false diagnosis is a major, major, major consequence mentally, emotionally, stress-wise. stress, stress -wise. And that's why I love um, Dr. Gabor Mate. He actually talks a lot about the stress of a mother growing a baby um, really, really, truly does affect a baby. And people, before getting ultrasound, before getting genetic testing, they don't sit there and do an inventory of, the potential consequence of a false diagnosis and the stress on a mom when you have no control anyways. You have no control. Exactly. What are no. you going to do with that information? So mm -hmm. it, it, it's really about taking inventory on if I'm going to get this ultrasound and something's wrong, like what am I going to do about it anyways? If there's nothing, then maybe maybe not get that ultrasound. And it's just having that that really simple, basic 
um, self-inventory and reflection and inquiry. It's it's quite simple, but we, you know, we just keep doing what everyone else does. And we just go to the next appointment, next appointment, because it's what's expected of us. We don't, we don't think, we don't question at all. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. Like I said, obviously hindsight's easy. And obviously I'm, I'm in a different place now than I was then. And, you know, as we talk about, I mean, everything is meant to happen, how it was the lessons that I learned or the experiences that I went through. And as much as I, my ego would like to say, I could have done it better. <laughs> you should have done it like this. You could have been more perfect. I have to accept what I learned through that experience. And I mean, I, yeah. I don't, I don't know if I would have made it to free birthing had I not had that particular experience at the hospital with the ultrasounds that day. Yeah. But also what I'm thinking of in this moment is, you know, your oldest is seven. Mm-hmm. If I had a child seven years ago, I could have very similar stories to you because my, you know, our spiritual growth on this planet, it keeps accelerating. And we're very, I know we're very similar in our spiritual growth. And if I had a child seven years ago, I'd probably have similar stories to you, but I haven't had a child yet. So Imagine having your first child in the emotional awareness and spiritual growth that you are in right now. Your stories would be totally different. Yeah. 100%. Yeah. I mean, they would be yeah, so different. You know, we're always doing the best we can with what we know. And we're always doing choices based on our awareness and consciousness at the time. And your story perfectly speaks to that. Your, you know, your first birth versus your third it literally is a reflection of your spiritual and personal growth. It's amazing. Yeah, it definitely. I mean, yeah, when I really think about how everything really lined up and yeah, what I was going through in the time. Yeah, it's like, yeah, it's, it's, like I said, I don't know, divine intervention, divine timing, everything just happened how it needed to happen for me to get to where I am for my third son. So yeah, you're yeah. dealing with the ultrasound. So then what happens after that? So I'm, I'm bailing on the hospital. Now I'm done. Definitely not doing that. So, but then I'm still not, again, I, I know that about the free birth and the home birth, but I'm also worried about my husband and his comfort level and, you know, everything surrounding, you know, his fears around birth. And uh, so I say, well, I'm going to do the, con- I'm going to do find a middle ground. And we have a true freestanding birth center that's, you know, in, you know, in the city I live, it's not very far from my house. So I'm like, I'm going to go to the birth center. Because that's going to be better, obviously. The midwives, i.e. medwives, are going to be better. It's going to be awesome. So I go there um, at, you know, 24 weeks. And first they have, obviously they want all my records. So they're a little hesitant because I had this, you know, little glitch on the ultrasound. So they, they say maternal fetal needs to sign off saying that even if it's just what they suspected, is that something that they can still support at the birth center? So the doctor wait. said yes, but. Yeah, wait, yeah, let's do this caveat on birth centers where you typically have to have a very perfect pregnancy and perfect paperwork to actually give birth in a birth center because their regulations and rules are are very high standard um, because they have to follow a lot of rules and laws and things. So if you have something like what you had, right, it's going to be an issue. It's birth center births, you know, there's a high likelihood that they transfer you to the hospital. So you have to really have perfect paperwork and a really perfect pregnancy to actually give birth in a birth center. Yep, 100%. So yeah, they, like I said, they wanted to know that 
even if the baby did have this maybe stomach thing that they were talking about, you know, it wouldn't be like he needed to be resuscitated when he was born. That would be something that we could address, you know, a day after birth. And that's kind of what they wanted to sign off for. So right away, that was kind of like, you know, a little bit of a red flag to me. But I was like, okay, they got to do their thing. I know they have their license. You know, I'm a licensed person too. I get it. You got to do your thing. So I was like, whatever. So then they, you know, say, I have to do my glucose test. And I say, well, I'm not drinking the glucola. I'm not doing it. Like, I refuse to do that. So they're like, well, you know, we're going to have to have, like, the owner of the practice, the head midwife agree to let you have something else and I was like okay well I need 50 grams of sugar because that's what's in the glucola I said I can get 50 grams of sugar from anything I said I can figure that out and so they basically said well this is the one time I got my pharmacist pass they said well since you're a pharmacist and you're a healthcare professional we trust that you know how much of a drink to drink to get your 50 grams to do your blood test to make sure that you don't have gestational diabetes. <laughs> so uh, I was like, oh, wow, thank, thank you for allowing <laughs> me to not drink poison. It's so kind. <laughs> Obviously, I don't have gestational diabetes. I have no markers. I've never had any problems. So I was kind of like, okay, this is weird. So I go to one more appointment. We're now to like mid-July. My son is born, was born on September 18th. So, you know, I'm pretty far along. And I go into an appointment. And I, I again, I just, I want to be very clear. I said, I want a completely intervention free birth. I do not want Dopplers. I do not want cervical checks. I do not want oxytocin. I do not want anything. She's like, okay. Um, well, you know, everybody needs at least an IM injection of oxytocin afterwards to help you pass the placenta or to help with bleeding. And that's just what we do. And I said, I do not want anything unless this is a true emergency situation. And I agree to having it. And they said, well, again, our, our standard of care is that everyone gets an IM injection of oxytocin afterwards, no matter what. And I left that appointment and said, all right, this is like my OB. I'm done. I'm not coming back here anymore. So now what am I going to do? <laughs> it's so, just like it's a not. hospital mm -hmm. so don't be fooled by a birth center if you want to do that I mean I get um again our programming and wanting to feel safe and if that's your first birth and that's what you need to do to step yourself at least one step away from the hospital and the OB model it definitely can be better than the hospital at least the rooms were beautiful they had big queen beds they had big tubs they had all the balls and all the things and unlimited movement and you can go outside, which is all great that they let you have all this stuff. But, you know, again, it is still a hospital and it's still a medical facility that has drugs on hand and will do things without your consent if it comes down to it. So I leave that appointment and I tell my husband, he's already very starting to question the medical system. Um, he has his own, um, chronic health condition. He has Crohn's disease and he has had a lot of bad experiences. It actually took many, many years for him to even get an appropriate diagnosis. So he already doesn't have a lot of trust in their complete inability to help him when he was having a lot of problems. And then when they did the thing with the ultrasound and leaving us high and dry, and he's like, I'm so sick of this. He's like, did they tell you the truth? Do they even know what they're doing? Does anybody even know at the hospital? Are they just making it up every day? 
He's like, why would we go there? They don't even know how to help you. And I was like, yeah, do you want to just have the baby at home? He was like, well, can we have somebody here? Because obviously he's not, he's not as far along in like a spiritual type journey as I am. So he was a little hesitant. So I'm like, well, let's see. I'll see if I can find a home birth midwife. Luckily, I found one. She actually is fills in at the birth center that I worked at previously. Um, she wasn't really practicing a lot there now, but like I went to her late again. I'm not at this point. I'm like 34 weeks, 35 weeks along trying to find this new home birth midwife that maybe has an opening. Somehow by divine intervention, she does have an opening. And I explained to her like, you know, my sequence of events. And she's like, yeah, I do. I've practiced at that birth center. And she goes, I know what they're trying to do, but she goes, yeah, they just don't really practice midwifery how it should be and we had a lot of conversations you know I let her know I was like well what are you gonna do or like what how often do you transfer and she's like I have a less than one percent transfer rate the only times that I transferred was a baby was like seriously was not breathing at all like she was having to attempt to resuscitate the baby when the ambulance came and then a mom was bleeding so much two times like you know white as a ghost bleeding just too much and transferring she says i do not transfer unless i have to i said well what do you do about cervical checks i don't believe in that she says it doesn't mean anything i said well like what about you know trying to use a doppler to hear the heartbeat and she said i don't use that i only use oh man what's the name for the the like a stethoscope to listen to the baby's heart i can't remember what it's called but that so it's not like you know it's not it's just a normal like listening with a stethoscope so no no like sound waves no like real intervention to the baby I said, well, what are you going to do if, you know, I go past 42 weeks? And she goes, hmm, nothing. She goes, I know that. We don't know exactly. I'll just mark on the chart that you're unsure of your last period so that your your date is flexible. So I can see that she's a little bit more in line. You know, she's asking, like, did you get the flu shot? I'm like, no. And she's like, okay, good. She's like, did you get the COVID vaccine? I'm like, no. And she's like, okay, good. So she's definitely more of a holistic midwife. She does obviously still need to protect her license because I I had to go and see. She said there was only one OB in my entire metro area that would sign off on her patients to legally allow her to do home births. No one else would sign off on her. There was only one. So I had to go to that special OB who was not covered my insurance and I had to pay out of pocket just so that she could, you know, come to my birth. And I was willing to, because they didn't do anything. They I literally just showed up at the appointment they like, whatever, asked me some questions. I said, I don't want anything. I'm here to get my sign off. And they just did my sign off for me. Um, so it was really good for my husband. He learned a lot from her on like, you know, cause she always said like, if the baby comes and I'm not there, I can't get there. This is what you, this is how you help her. If there is something wrong, these are the things to look out for. Like, you know, if the baby is coming out and the baby's blue or purple, that's not good. But if the baby's like just gray and mottled, that's normal. They're not breathing. They're not going to be pink and, you know, rosy, like, like a breathing, you know, newborn baby. And just really, really kind of cueing him in on some of that stuff. So um, I know we talk like, especially in free birth society, they talk a lot about not catering to your, you know, your husband's fear that, that this is your birth, you're the authority in your birth. And I 100% agree with that. But I also don't want him feeling like so anxious that he doesn't feel like he can support me either. Yeah, so you felt like she educated him in, like, a really well way. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So that was fine, you know, whatever. I saw a couple appointments with her. 
Um, she didn't come to my house, but I actually went to her house. She had like a little like spot in her upstairs. We pretty much just talked every time. She would let me listen to the heartbeat with the little scope thing and we didn't really do much. Um, so then, yeah, fast forward now, it's September, you know, I'm, I'm 40 and four. I decide I need to stop working because I'm still working, but I just felt I'm like, I don't think he's going to come if I keep going to work and putting myself in this stressful environment. Like he's going to be like, I'm hanging on until you <laughs> are in like a safe place. <laughs> you have some nervous system regulation. So I was like, not going to go to work today. Um, I had went and got an adjustment with the chiropractor because my lower back had really been bothering me from, from sitting at work with my big pregnant belly. So she did a little bit of a sacral release on me. Now, did that do anything or not? I'm not sure, but that evening, um, then I went into labor and also just like a fun fact, my, my middle and my baby, my third have the same birthday. Wow. Yep, they're born, they're born on the exact same day, both, you know, like naturally. So September kind of 18th. Mm-hmm. Yep. Wow. That's my, that's my dad's birthday too. Oh, really? Yeah. Crazy. Wow. So it was the day before and I asked my middle, I said, what do you want for your birthday? And he said, I want baby brother to come out of your belly on my birthday. So he got his birthday wish. Um, I went into labor that evening. Um, I went to sleep. I woke up, you know, around midnight again. And I was like, whoa, this is intense. But I wake up and I'm like, oh man, it's, it's Xander's birthday. Like he needs to feel special on his birthday. So I got to go bake a cake. So I'm like downstairs baking a cake while I'm in labor by myself because I'm like well I don't know how long this labor is going to be it could be it could be like four hours like my last one it could be 20 hours I mean it could be days I don't know if I don't wake up my husband or anything I'm just so I, I get down I, I bake this whole cake I get it all ready to have it sitting out and then my body decides it's gonna start purging I have to use the bathroom a lot so I go upstairs um, I turn on the lights. I'm not really paying attention to timing contractions or anything. And I have all the lights on in my master and I'm running the water and my husband's still just like sleeping and I'm yelling. I'm like, wake up. And he's like, what's going on? I'm like, I'm in labor. So I get this whole tub filled up. I don't know what I'm thinking I'm going to do with this tub. I get in it for like three minutes. I get out and I'm like, I have to get out. And he's like, let me help you. I'm like, do not touch my body. <laughs> Cause I'm trying to get out of this tub. Super pregnant. It's not a very safe situation getting out of the tub. I get out of the tub. I have to use the bathroom again, but I can't make it to the bathroom. And in my head, <laughs> although I'm in labor, I'm like, in the, I'm like, literally, I'm in transition right now. All I can think about is I'm, and I'm saying it out loud too. I'm sorry that you have to clean up my bowels. <laughs> like, I'm sorry that you have to clean up my poop <laughs> to my husband. He's like, stop apologizing. I'm, I'm really sorry. And he's like, stop. So even like in in transition, I'm like about to like go into the ethers here. And I'm still worried about like him, like maybe thinking I'm gross because I <laughs> yeah, and, ap and apologizing. You're such yeah. a woman. <laughs> so no. where, how come, at what point did you call the midwife? Did you purposely wait to call her? So in that moment, I don't ever remember intentionally thinking like I'm not going to call her. But really, I feel like that really was my plan the whole time. Like, I wanted to have the baby alone. I didn't want her to be there, even though she did tell me that she has had births where she just sits downstairs or whatever and doesn't come up at all unless she's requested to come. So I did know that, but still, I was like, I don't know. I think it also comes back into how I mentioned my sister wound, mother wound, and 
lack of trust in women. Some people, that's a big comfort to bring a woman into the space, that wise woman, you know, energy. Um, I think it's my distrust that felt like I didn't want that there because she had shown me nothing but, you know, my ability to trust her and being in alignment with all of my decisions that I was making. So I think that was my own thing. Um, so I didn't call, but that's when my husband, he's like, well, how far apart are your contractions? I was like, I don't know. Do you think I've been timing them? So he just looks at me and he's like, Holly, they're like, he's like, are you even getting a break? <laughs> he's like, they're like nonstop. And he was like, so he calls the midwife and she's like, let me talk to her. So she's trying to talk to me and she's, she can tell. And she's like, okay, you're doing great. She goes, I'm on my way. And then like my husband talked to her and she was like, I'm not going to make it. Like <laughs> you gotta be like, she's not going to make it. Cause it, it would take her 30 minutes to get to my house from where she lived. So I hang up. I'm like, I need to get to the bed. My husband had gotten it all set up. You know, we had like the protectors and all that stuff. So I didn't completely destroy our expensive mattress, <laughs> but I'm like, I need to get to the bed again. He's like, let me help you. I'm like, do not touch me. Do not touch me at all. I crawl on hands and knees over to my bed. I climb up onto the bed my fetal ejection reflex just kicks in. I'm on all fours and he just starts coming out. I'm saying, I'm like, I'm like, where are you? Come down to the, I, I need you by the bed because I'm like almost off the side. I don't want him to come out and like fall on the floor, the baby. Um, so he comes, he's like, I don't see the baby, but you can, when you have a, you can feel the baby. Like I'm like, his head is coming. I can feel him like coming through my pelvis and my cervix. And then all of a sudden he's like, oh my God. I see his head and he was like keep pushing and I was like I can't I was like I need to wait for the next contraction to push his shoulders up so we're like almost arguing in the middle of labor <laughs> like not in a bad way but I think he felt panicked um so I gave one more push and he came out um, so then he was born uh, and the I you know just picked him up oh I, he was behind me so my husband caught him handed me like up through my legs and I like got him and he wasn't crying. He didn't seem like in extreme distress. Um, but he just seemed a little bit like kind of gurgly sounding. So I don't know if I needed to do this or not in the moment. I felt like I needed to, it could be because I had maybe seen a couple birth videos, but I just felt like I needed to, um, like help, like do something like with his mouth. So I just gave like a little bit of like blowing in on his mouth and it kind of just like like made him take that kind of like startly breath and then he just started screaming and he was like fine like would he have maybe just cried on his own probably but I don't know in the moment I just felt like I needed to do something I don't know why yeah but with that sister Morningstar episode on free birth society that I love so much that's what she details though is that a mom breathing on a baby is the oxygen that a baby needs and that's what people you know sometimes like, oh, I'm going to hire a midwife because they have an oxygen tank. Well, they don't know anything. And the episode of Sister Morningstar about newborn's first breasts on Free Birth Society is so good because she talks about just the primal instinct of a mother and how she breathes on her baby and she kisses the baby's face and then kisses the baby's ear and stimulates the nerve in the ear to wake a baby up. And it's just so perfect. It's so magical. It's so amazing. And... Yeah, I mean, who knows? I, to me, it sounds like your primal instinct because you're using your breath. Yeah. So, I, I mean, that's what I felt like is that in a moment. But again, I'm still working on distinguishing, like, what's my intuition and what's my ego-driven thoughts from my societal programming that I have. And, like, had I seen that, I, it's hard for me to know yeah. now, like, the thing. But it felt instinctual at the time. Um, he was fine. He was he He seemed okay. He did have this rash on his face. 
Um, at first, it almost looked like he even had like moles on his face. He had three on one cheek and four on the other. They were like dark looking patches. Um, but, you know, I was just like so happy that he was there. He was fine. You know, I was like trying to get him to latch for nursing. Um, all of a sudden, I mean, we were still working in nursing. He hadn't latched yet, but I just like, I was sitting on like my butt on the bed and all of a sudden I was like, help me up to my husband. Like I got the urge to push and I just like came up on my knees. I was still like in the bed. So not like standing just up on my knees and I just gave one push and then the placenta came out. And then about two minutes later, both the midwife and the midwife assist because there was a midwife in training like came in and they looked and they're like, you did it all. You didn't even need us. (laughs) Yeah. How did that feel? Because you had an unassisted home birth. So how did that feel in that moment? It felt amazing. I mean, yeah, that, that feeling of not having all those people around, like I did in the other births, you know, I still had that unmedicated, obviously I felt the whole thing. You know, I had that I'm lucky. I won't say I had ecstatic births, but I would not describe birth as painful at all. Intense. Yes. (laughs) All the intensity, but I wouldn't say painful at all. Um, And that's like how the hospital ones were, but this was just different just to not have anyone touching us, not talking to us, just me and my husband. And the fact that he was the first person to touch him with his bare hands and not the gloves and not all these other people. It just, I don't know. I, I did feel like, wow, like this is it. This is how it's supposed to be for sure. Like this, I wish I had done this with the other one, you know, my other births. I wish I had allowed them to have that experience in their birth as well. Yeah. And also like you are in the comfort of your own home. You are in your truly safe spot. And it shows because you weren't drugged without your consent. You had a fully unmedicated birth post and pre-birth. And you didn't get that in your other births because you were in a medical building. And they specialize in medical births. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. And I guess I, yeah, it was just nice, I guess. And I'm about to tell the next part of the story that Leah already knows, but it ended up not being as blissful as I wanted, but I really wanted the only, I just would have loved to have my kids come in. That was like really what I wanted was to, you know, to have that whole beautiful experience with the kids and everything. And and everyone else will hear in a second why that didn't happen. But um, I think it was, it was definitely, it was perfect. And it was how it needed to be. It was a lesson like you said, I didn't get the additional medications or any of the drugs. And I do feel like the bonding was better. I feel like it was a little bit easier to nurse right off the bat with him. And I think it was because my natural oxytocin was available to stimulate my milk, you know, coming in and the colostrum and that whole experience versus pumping my body full of so much synthetic oxytocin. Was it even able to produce any natural in those other situations or not? Yeah. Also, before we get into, you know, the next phase of this story, which is the a huge piece of this story, um, do you want to speak on just some of the ego stuff with birth, like free birth? Like you said, like some of your ego thoughts. Yeah. So, um, you know, like when I'm in labor and experiencing like the discomfort and it's funny because you actually mentioned this in a recent podcast about the stoicism of like Finnish people. And that really like resonated with me because I just felt like the whole time I was like, it's so intense and I'm like breathing through it. But in my head, I'm like, I can't be loud. Like I can't be yelling. 
I need to stand here with, I need to be, I can experience it and I can move. I don't have to be still, but I should be able to handle it. Like in my head, you're, you can handle this. This is fine. You've been hurt before. Um, I've, uh, I won't say I have a bad back because again, my body is intelligent and it knows what it's doing, but I have hurt my back many times, quote, throwing my back out where I cannot walk up the stairs because I have so much nerve pain. And I've, I've experienced that where I've had that for like five days straight. And I have, there's nothing, all they'll give you is pain meds and I never want that. So I've lived in these places where you do have pain and I'm like, so I can do this. Like you, you don't complain. You just suck it up and you keep going to work and you keep doing your thing. So even in labor, that's what I'm like. I can't, I can't make noise. I have to be quiet. Also, I don't want to wake up my husband in all of my births. I don't want to wake him up. I don't want to bother him. And obviously I'm not a bother to him. He's never made me feel like that. Never said anything. But with my first one, I like let him sleep pretty much all night. He didn't know I've been in labor for six hours and I never woke him up because I didn't want to disrupt him. I, I didn't want, I didn't want him to be tired or him to feel uncomfortable. So I let him keep sleeping or doing what he needed to do. Because again, I'm not thinking about myself. <laughs> that's so juicy because it's a woman's fear of being centered. Mm-hmm. How would it feel to be so fully centered and so fully receive, so fully receive care and love and support and attention? Oh my gosh, I so resonate with that because um, I, when I've had restless nights of sleep, I'm like, I'm moving too much. I'm going to disrupt my husband. And then I get anxiety over it. Oh my gosh. And then some, and then I feel by myself too, this is like outside of my birth, but because I am so like worried about him all the time that when he doesn't do that in the same level as me, in my head, I'm going, he doesn't even care. Does he even know that like I'm trying to sleep? Why doesn't he care like I care? But then I'm like, but Holly, you're the, you're the one who has more of an unhealthy relationship with this experience. It's not him. He's not being inconsiderate. You're being, you're over functioning and over committing to him and too worried about his feelings. He's a grown man. He's okay. Like he can handle it. That is, that is, yeah. I think a lot of women are going to resonate with that because a lot of women resonate with it with it with um, catering to their midwife, but I think the husband is a big aspect that I don't hear being talked about enough. Yeah, so that that's kind of like my big thing that I was really thinking about a lot. Other than obviously when I was in the hospital, the, the things that I did consent to was all me thinking I have to be a good girl. I have to listen. If I say no to this, they might force something else on me and me thinking, I mean, that is logical actually in the hospital that they will do that. But just every thought is, how are they going to perceive me? Am I going to be the difficult patient? Are they going to talk about me when they get out of the room? Like, you know, how, how, how are my interactions going to be? And also, you know, the time I had my second was at a hospital that I work at. And not that I know all the nurses, but like, what are they going to think? Oh, now, oh, she's that weird hippie person that, you know, doesn't want anything. And she's always questioning and me worried about everyone's perceptions during that experience. Yeah, you're you're so difficult. Yeah. And I actually think a lot of us got a lot of practice during 2020 with COVID um, being maybe the difficult one or the one that wasn't willing to go with the herd. Like for me, I get really scared about laws (laughs) like societal norms I don't care about but actual laws where I can like get in trouble that's where I get really scared so I was really triggered with COVID stuff about 
being yelled at or, you know, thrown out of a store. And so I really had to challenge myself on, you know, what do I value and what, what am I willing to do and what am I st- willing to stand up for? And am I willing to be looked at in a bad way? Am I willing to be labeled in a bad way? And so for my personality for 2020, I think a lot of us actually got a lot of practice in that where we were willing to be the the bad one or the difficult one sometimes. And other times, you know, we're like, whatever, I'm just going to go with the flow on this one. But I think we got practice during that. Yeah. I agree. Like you said, like I said, that was kind of my awakening too. And, you know, refusing, you know, the vaccines. And I'm, I, I mean, at my work, we had to wear a mask. I didn't have a choice. I can't be fired from my job. So even though I was like all on board with the masking at first, because I think a lot of us kind of bought into that very first month or two of hysteria and why well, I, I should wear my mask. Oh my gosh, it's so dangerous. But then after a little bit, I was like, this is ridiculous. So I was taking that mask out every chance I got yeah. at work after that, like wear it in the door. So you look like you're following your rules. But get in your yeah. office and take that off. Seriously. Um, yeah. And then what about like the ego of free birth? You kind of touched on that when we talked. And I and I think it's not really talked about enough because I'm m- one of my most passionate, you know, passionate topics is the voice of the ego and the voice of the soul. And they're very different. And it's not a bad thing to listen to the ego voice because we are human. Like we have an ego. Like that's what we are. But it's just being aware of it. And with the free birth movement, I do think there are a lot of women that, you know, their ego does want the badge of free birth to be unique or different or strong or all, all these things. And, and I don't think it's a bad thing. I think it's a very ego thing. And we are humans with egos. Yeah, that's definitely, you know, like I said, obviously I had those bad experiences that were kind of leading me away from that. But when I really think about it, a big driver was, again, being tough. Like, I can do this. I All these other women can do it. I'm, I'm going to do this because I'm going to say that I did this. I'm going to tell everybody afterwards that I had this baby at home and, you know, they all went to the hospital and I'm, I'm going to be so much better because I'm stronger and I'm not going to be poor me and, you know, how much better I was going to be and not even against anyone in particular, but like, I was going to do this big, strong thing. I was going to birth how we were meant to birth and not everyone does that. And although knowing it was the right thing, you know, for me, it was the right thing for my son. There was at least part of the decision that was in how, how it was going to be perceived and how it, you know, that, that would, that could be my story. Now I'm that person. You know, and yeah. people at work do think I'm crazy. They're like, oh, Holly's that crazy one. You know, she gave birth at home. Can you believe her? So like, I, I am that person. <laughs> so whether- That's so funny that you're saying that because, yeah, home birth, free birth is biologically normal. It is biologically the safest thing for a mother, for a baby, right? It's all of these things. But then when we interject the ego, when there's like a huge movement, like free birth, free birth is just normal biological birth that's it but when we have when we have this movement there's egos involved and I think it's just natural and I just did shadow work Holly on this where the biggest fear I have about potentially free birthing in my future is not necessarily death because that is the most natural fear is lost death um and you don't free birth um for the guarantee of a healthy baby you free birth for you know um, avoiding unnecessary interventions and harm. 
and being the authority in your birth, right? But you don't do it for the guarantee of a healthy baby, which is you're going to continue with your story. But I just did shadow work where my biggest fear isn't necessarily death or loss. It's saying I'm going to be different and I'm going to birth in this different way than society and then not. And then like sabotaging my own birth, like transferring to the hospital and being like, I'm normal. I'm basic. I'm not different. And that challenges my whole story of self that I'm different. And that is my shadow stuff. And I love that you're saying this because I can relate. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I appreciate your honesty. I mean, you always are on your podcast and your Instagram. And, you know, that's like so true. I mean, yeah, we all have, you know, our reasons, but we all know deep down, you know what your shadow is. You know what could be that self-limiting factor that you have in the back of your mind. And you need to, like I said, work through that. Yeah, and my, and my, and my, you could say my shadow wants to free birth in my future to be different. Um, And that's not, that's not a bad thing. Like, that's not a bad thing, but I'm just bringing the shadow to the light and being honest, radically honest. And that, that shadow motivation is actually the best thing for me and a potential future baby. So it's not necessarily bad. It's just about radical honesty. Yeah, that's awesome. Yeah, let's continue with your story because this is when it gets crazy. Okay. So again, we just had the baby. He seems, you know, perfectly fine and healthy. I'm getting him to latch. He has this rash on his face, which this is really going to play in (laughs) soon. Um, So midwife comes, you know, they're just starting to clean stuff up. They're just observing us. They're letting us do our thing. Um, So we probably have a, it's for sure a full hour. It might even be 90 minutes. You know, no one's touched the placenta. No one's touched the cord. No one's touched the baby but me. My midwife finally says, hey, are you ready to just do a quick assessment? You know, you can continue to hold the baby. We can just do everything together. You know, just make sure. So they, you know, just check the body head to toe. Do they have all the, you know, their, their toes and stuff? She asked, like, did he pass his meconium yet? He had not. So they don't, like, do anything invasive, but they just kind of look to make sure that the rectum is open. They make sure, like, you know, the penis looks open just so that your orifices that you can clear. So, again, they're not, like, touching. They just say, you know, let's let's just look real quick, make sure everything looks good. And, you know, like, oh, he looks perfect. Do you want to listen to his heartbeat? And I was like, yeah, sure. So it's actually the assistant midwife. She listens first. And she's listening for like a while and she just kind of makes an odd face, but she's training. So she hands the stethoscope to the main midwife and says, how about you just take a listen? Like she's not acting panicked, but I can see something seems not normal or I don't, or maybe she just doesn't know in my head. I'm like, I can't tell. So midwife listens and she doesn't say anything. She just listens. She goes, how about you listen? And you let me know what you think. So I listen and his heart, it doesn't even sound like a heart. It sounds faster than machine gun. It's going so fast. It sounds like a continuous heartbeat. There is just like, but there's no, no stopping at all. And I kind of look at her and I was like, that's like really fast. And she's like, yeah. And she goes, I have a, like a little, um, it's kind of like a Doppler. It's a little different, but it can measure heart rates that she doesn't, she just brings for like something like that. So she tries to like, you know, use that to see it's so high. This machine can't even read it. It's like over the top. It can't even register the heartbeat on it. So she looks at me and she's like, I'm not sure what's wrong. His heart rate is really, really fast. She says, I recommend we go to the hospital, but what do you think? And obviously I'm like two hours postpartum. I'm like, 
wanted to have this big, beautiful, blissful home birth. My boys were going to wake up in two hours and they were going to come and they're going to meet their baby brother and it's going to be so beautiful and perfect. So, you know, for a split second, I'm like, I want to stay. But then I'm like, do I want to stay because I want that experience or am I staying because I really don't believe this is a, like a medical emergency that we need to go to the hospital? So I, we sat, I was like, well, let me take a shower real quick because if I am going to leave, I cannot be having blood and fluids all over my thighs and everything to go and stand in this hospital. So I take a shower and just take a minute and like, think like, what do I want to do? Do I want to wait a little bit longer or do I want to go? So I'm in the shower, maybe, you know, 10 minutes. My husband's holding the baby again. He seems okay, but he is a little, I don't know if lethargic is it, but I still hadn't gotten him to fully latch for nursing. He's, he was awake and stuff, but he did, he wasn't, he wasn't crying a lot. He wasn't wanting to latch immediately like my first two. And I don't know if that played into it or not, this heart rate thing, but I, I'm just like building this case now in my head on what do I need to do? So I come out and my husband looks very scared. He's not medical trained. And I say, I said, let's listen again. It sounds exactly the same. And we say, all right, we're going to go to the hospital. The midwife calls ahead, says, you know, we just had this home delivery. It was completely uneventful baby is acting perfectly fine. The heart rate seems elevated. We're coming in right now. Can you get the neonatal cardiology team paged in so that they can assess him when they get there? Um, So me and my husband, you know, jump in the vehicle together and I have a live-in nanny so I can like leave and my kids are okay because she's leaving my house. So we leave and you know, me and my husband are crying and the whole time, you know, I'm, I'm skin to skin. My baby only doesn't even have a diaper on. And I keep just trying to tell him as we're driving, like, it's okay. You know, do you feel mommy's heart? Do you feel mommy's heart? This is how our hearts need to be. Like, can, can you make your heart be, you know, normal? So when we get there, so we can go home and I'm like crying and, you know, really just trying to like talk to him and be like, it's okay. And I'm sorry, we're having to go to the hospital right now. And I'm sorry. I'm getting I'm getting emotional about it. I don't talk about don't it have, a lot. So. Yeah, you don't have to apologize. <laughs> so it was like really intense. And then you know we get in there. It's four o'clock in the morning, and the the front desk is worried about my insurance and trying to ask me all these questions as I'm holding my baby because my husband's trying to park the car because it's a big hospital and he doesn't want me walking from the parking garage. And I'm like crying I'm like can you just my baby needs to be looked at can you please just bring me to the back and finally she's like okay fine yeah we'll for you know we'll forget the insurance and we come in and they bring us back and there's the ED doc this is a big children's hospital and he's like okay yeah like let's hook him up so they start putting the little patches on and yeah and his heart is beating over 300 beats a minute when we get there and within five like within 30 seconds I go from having a nurse and one physician to having an entire team of people because this is a teaching hospital. All of a sudden, there is no joke. There must have been 25, 30 people in this room with us. And I'm like freaking out. And I'm like, think I don't know if my baby's going to die at this moment because I don't know what's going to happen. The cardiologist comes in, the resident, and you can tell he's not really sure. They finally, the lead cardiologist comes in and, you know, they're looking at all the monitors and they're assessing him and they're like, he seems okay. Like, you know, his, at that point, his oxygen was only like a little bit low. It was like, you know, at like 96, but it can be a little low right after birth. Obviously you're, they're just getting used to breathing and everything. And 
So it's like, well, we don't want to do meds right away because maybe we can get this turned around. Um, and at this point, at least I didn't notice. I'm sure they're already making comments that this is a home birth situation behind my back because everything else afterwards would lead to that that discussion. But at this point, I don't hear that. But he says, let's let's try the non non invasive, which is filling packs of ice and putting it all over your baby's chest and neck and his face, except for his nose so that he can breathe. So they're putting ice all over him. Um, the point is to try to get you to get like a basal vagal reaction. So if you were an adult and having this experience, they would tell you to attempt to bear down like you're having a bowel movement because it can create a connection within your nervous system to push your heart back into a normal rhythm. Obviously, I can't tell a baby to bear down, so they couldn't do that. So this ice is supposed to kind of make them do like a gasping type thing to, you know, shock the heart to go back into a standard rhythm. Unfortunately, that was not helpful. Um, it made no difference in his, you know, his heart rate. It's still over 300. Um, we're probably there. I don't know the time frame. I don't know, 20 minutes, half an hour. And they're like, we're going to have to give him, you know, the the meds. And I'm a pharmacist, so I know that the medicine that they have to give him is going to stop his heart from beating for a second while it resets itself. Um, one of the one of the fellows that was coming to the that showed up, she was just a regular neonatologist. She actually was the wife of one of my coworkers, and that was like my rock in that moment. And she treated me like a human when everyone else didn't. So I wanted, I just want to like bring that up for just a second because that's the only person who treated me as a human this entire experience. So um, this person that I knew, knew that I was a pharmacist and she said, you know what this medicine's about to do. It's going to flatline your baby when we give the med. Do you want to go and tell your husband what's about to happen so that he doesn't think that your son just died in a, in this split second moment? So, cause I'm right at the bed, like with the baby, but there's so many people around him. So my husband's a little bit off to the side, you know, just feeling, you know, after the fact, he felt very helpless. He was so scared. No one was really talking to him. So I just went to him and I just said, his heart is going to stop when they give him this med, but this is our only choice. And he said, okay. So they gave him the med. He flatlined for just a second and then it bounced right back into a perfect rhythm and he was okay. And he didn't cry or nothing happened. And I was just like, oh my gosh, like that was like my first like real breath, I feel like, since I heard the, the super racing heartbeat. Just knowing that at least seeing that his heart could beat normally felt like a relief to me to see that normal rhythm on the strip. And then this is where everything really starts to spiral out of control. So now now that's okay. But now it's like, well, did you birth at home? Yes. Well, did you get did you get tested for groupie strep? Well, what about antibiotics? You didn't even get tested? Well, what about this rash on his face? We don't know what this is. We need, we need to give him antibiotics. And I'm still like really upset. And I'm like, I, I don't, I'm like, I don't really think that we, we need to give him antibiotics. And she's like, no, we need to give him antibiotics. And this is when my, my midwife had actually come in too. And she's like, she doesn't want antibiotics. There's no reason to give him antibiotics. And they were being very hateful to my midwife. They're like, you don't get to make a decision. Stop talking. We're going to ask you to leave if you do not stop speaking for the, the mom and the baby. They were being super abusive to her. And I was like, yeah, I don't want the antibiotics. But I mean, I'm like, again, I'm still bleeding. I'm standing for over an hour. I'm sore. And I just, 
I just wasn't paying. All of a sudden they come over with syringes and I'm like, what are you doing? And they're like, yeah, we're giving them antibiotics. And they kind of just like push them like right in front of me. And I was like, I mean, other than me, like grabbing their hands, I don't know what else I could have done. Cause I said, like, I don't really want them. And they kind of just did it anyways, like without, I mean, I was there watching it. So I guess because I didn't, I don't know, punch the nurse that was consent. I'm not really sure where we stood with that. Yeah. What are you supposed <laughs> to do? Yeah. So I had to kind of accept it. Um, then we're, so then, you know, they're monitoring him and his heart's fine. And we're just kind of left in this room now. Now it's just me and my husband and the baby. Now everyone left. Now my emergency's over, I guess. And I'm in there for almost two hours. Again, I have no chair. I have nothing. My midwife had like went out and she comes back and then she, she's like, what is going on? And she goes out there and like, can somebody get her a chair? Can somebody, she just had a baby. Can you guys treat her like she's a human? And they're like, oh, oh yeah, I get, I guess we can try to see if we can get her a room so she can lay down. So then I finally, they get me a room where I can at least lay in the bed and hold my baby that's hooked up to a thousand things and, you know, whatever. He has a lock in his arm because he doesn't have fluids running, but, you know, they want to be able to give him more unnecessary antibiotics. So we transfer up to the floor finally, and then all these specialists start coming in. So now I need infectious disease consult because he has an infectious disease because he has a rash on his face. And then I have dermatology come in. And again, it's a teaching hospital. So infectious disease comes in with a team of three and um, the dermatology team comes in with a team of four. So the first time they come in, they come in in regular garb. Now the next time, now no one's coming to my room for a while. Now the next time they come in, now everyone's in basically hazmat suits. Like I have, me and my baby have anthrax because now he has some contagious disease because I birthed at home and they are just treating me like I'm the most, I don't know, uh, irresponsible human that they've ever <laughs> interacted with in their lives. They're being, I mean, they are just so rude. They're telling me, you know, he needs to be on all these antibiotics. And I'm like, he doesn't need any antibiotics. And they're telling me, well, you know, he could have meningitis and he's going to die if you don't give him these antibiotics right now. And, you know, that rash, you know, that's probably, that's probably a viral thing. And like, he probably has, um, you know, like a variation of chickenpox. I said, how would he have that? And they're like, well, you never know. You're a, you could be a carrier. And, you know, you probably gave it to him when you were giving birth. And I'm like, how, why, why would that happen? I was like, that is not even a logical thing for you to tell me. I said, there is I said, I guess it's not impossible, but I said, there's a very high unlikelihood that that's going to happen. And I said, and that's a risk I'm willing to take. I'm not going to treat him with antibiotics. I will watch and wait. If he starts spiking a fever and acting like he's actually sick, I will consider treating him with the antibiotics you want. They want to keep telling me he's going to die. There's no risks associated with giving him the antibiotics. I'm like, yeah, there is. I said, the one you're trying to get one of the antibiotics, if I give him too much, I can completely blow out his kidneys. I've seen it happen to adults. And the antiviral is also, and they're like, well, that's okay. We'll just give him extra fluids then, you know, to help for the kidney health. I was like, I don't want him pumped full of fluids. I said, he doesn't need to be pumped full of nonstop D5 and normal saline running continuously the whole time he's there. And they just, <laughs> I was the bad, I was the bad mother in there because I could hear them talking outside, you know, she's really difficult. So, you know, you got to be careful with what you say. And then just really the way they would come in and talk to me and I would be defensive and they'd be like, you don't have to get upset about it. And I want to be like, well, it sounds like you're getting upset because I won't blindly consent to everything that you're asking me to do. Again, it's so shocking that 
I really just thought they would just treat everyone that's a doctor with respect. But if you're not consenting to what they want to do, then, you know, you don't deserve that respect. Yeah. And they tried to tell me that he had this, um, also this rare, as as I'm saying no to the standard infections, now they start trying to say this rash is some, this really, well, they tell me it's, I forgot what they called it. So I'm like looking up like legit studies and I'm like, what, like, what is actually the real likelihood? I knew he didn't have this, but I'm like, what are, what is even the chances of this even being real? They're trying to tell me he has something that's like less than 0.1% chance or, you know, of the entire population having it. He has some weird thing that I need to get an x-ray of his head, of his brain, because he's got, I'm like, I am not giving an x-ray on my 12 hour old baby's head. I'm, I 100% I'm not doing that. And they're like, well, I mean, that's what we need to do to properly diagnose and treat him. And I'm like, no, you don't. So we stayed, you know, that's early in the morning. We stayed that that day and that night. And the next day I said, I am going home. And ID was like, you cannot leave. Dermatology was like, you cannot leave. And I said, you tell that cardiologist to come in here. I came in here for cardiology. That is what I came for. I didn't come for either any of you. And the cardiologist came in and I said, what do you think? How have the monitors looked? And he says, there has been no issues at all. He said, in some children who have this, they need to start on meds. He says, if your plan is to start on meds, I'd like to start them today. And I'd like to keep you for one more night and then we'll decide. And I said, well, what's the likelihood of him going back into that fast rhythm? And he said, probably around 20%. And I said, well, to me, that is not a med to start meds now. Now, if, you know, in the future, if this happens again, we can have this discussion. I'm not going to put him on lifelong meds for a heart condition that was happened to just be a, a side effect, I guess, of the process of your heart going from a single to a, you know, that dual vessel when your lungs start picking up oxygen. That's what we believe happened. He just, the heart had a tough time getting into rhythm. So I just said to him, I don't want to do that. I'll have a follow-up appointment in your cardiology clinic. Whenever you think that is appropriate, I will come in for the monitoring. I would like you to discharge us from the hospital today. I said, you are the attending. I came here for cardiology. Um, You know, he consulted with the other providers. He said, they feel uncomfortable. I said, how do you feel? As my cardiologist, do you think he's safe to go home from a cardiology perspective? He said, yes. I said, will you sign my discharge papers for me? And he said, yes. And he let me leave. So I also feel I am slightly trauma bonded to that cardiologist because he was the only one who treated me like a human. So I might be um, a little bit more forgiving of the, of how he was. And maybe he wasn't even as amazing as he really, as I'm making this out to be, but in comparison to how terrible every other person treated me, he kind of was like, my godsend in that moment. And luckily, um, you know, we went for two more cardiology appointments and my son has never had any heart issues since. So I am very thankful that I didn't move forward with the meds, but I almost feel that that was my really final initiation into my mother is that I had to go to the hospital with him and prove to myself that I could stand up to authority over and over and over and over back to back to back while I was being disrespected and being told I was difficult and the bad patient and not and have to not care and do what was right. 
And I feel like since then, now that's my mentality. I don't care anymore what you say. (laughs) Yeah, I want you to explain your intuition as well because the way you said it to me on our phone call is that your intuition knew it was just the heart. And when they started going crazy about the infections and the antibiotics, you're like, no. Yep. So, yeah, I mean, you just summarized it well. But for me, as they kept, like I said, going to the hospital, I was feeling something is wrong with his heart. Like I need to go in. To me, it was in a true medical emergency that did require the use of the system. And that's why it's there for true emergencies. It's not that they have zero value, but you really need to go there. I couldn't give him those meds at home. I I didn't have the ability to do that. And could his heart have reverted back to a normal rhythm? It's not impossible, but it was very unlikely. And the longer your heart beats at that high, high rate, the the more damage it can cause, you know, lower oxygenation levels, tissue, perfusion, different things like that. So, um, but in my heart, I felt like the heart was an issue. Like you said, my intuition was like, you need to do something. But when they kept talking about, yeah, his rash being an infectious disease and everyone needed to wear all this stuff, I was like, you are all crazy. Like, there's nothing wrong with him. There's nothing wrong with him besides his heart. And I, I knew that. I was like, you, I, you, all of you are just trying to make a mountain out of a molehill or whatever. You, you want to find something wrong. You, especially as a dermatologist, though, they like, this is going to be their thing. They were going to find this less than 0.1% case, and it was going to be amazing. They were going to get to do all these tests. And my baby was going to be this experiment to them. Like that is how they looked at him. They did not look at him like a human at all. He was another case study for all those greedy students and residents that were in there that all wanted to see him and do an exam because everyone had to do an exam. And I'd be like, he just had an exam. Well, so-and-so needs to do it. I'm like, no, he doesn't. No, they don't. You can watch the one exam and you can tell each other what happened. Everyone does not need to put their gross hands on my baby. Don't touch him. I mean, man, the way you explain how you knew something about your heart, your intuition, but then no to everything else. I think a lot of us try to put ourselves in your shoes and we're like, how do you differentiate? But you know, you know, when you're in that moment, you know, and that's the part of trusting yourself is that when you know, you know, and in the moment, you know, but also home birth emergencies and transfers the whole, I love this story because you use the system when there was a need. And that's the whole point is using the system when there's an actual need, just like normal life. Me and you sitting here talking today, we're not going drive to the hospital right now because there's no need. If something happened to me where I needed to go to the emergency room, I would. But birth is not an emergency. So you were home, you had your baby in peace, and there was no emergency. That's why you were home. And then there was a concern, and you used the system. Like, it's it's so common sense. And I love it. I mean, it's, yeah. I mean, I don't, I don't love that you did not get the bliss of the postpartum with your, with your boys. Obviously, I don't love that. But your story really goes to show that it's just common sense. You use the system when there's an actual need. And also with stories like this, the ego really wants to go into mind stories and say, what would have happened if I didn't go to the hospital? Or, oh, uh, because I went to the hospital, my baby was saved, right? Like the mind, especially in tragedy, 
But with trauma in general, the mind says all these stories of, if I stayed home, my baby would have died. If I stayed home, my the heart would have corrected itself. It just creates all these stories. It tries to make meaning and it tries to find peace in the story. But we will never know the alternative, ever. So when a baby dies at home or a baby dies at a hospital, we really want to place blame to make meaning and to try to find peace or find blame. But we can never know the alternative choice ever, period. And we create mind stories to, to create, you know, that meaning and peace. But it, it's just mind stories. There's no proof in it. There will never be. We will never know the alternative. You'll never know what would, could have happened if you stayed home and not use the system. And I want to really just shed light on that because, because in tragedy, it's just really hard to process. And going into birth, I think there's a lot of fear of what could happen and what if I sabotage my own birth or what happens if there's a transfer and some like a really deep level of peace I got last week in this arena that gives me peace is no matter what you choose, no matter if you stay home, no matter if you use the system, if you transfer, if you choose to get drugs, no matter what you choose, even if it's in fear, it has the opportunity to help you grow. And you can make a choice in peace and it will help you grow. You can make a choice in fear and it will help you grow. And I have this, this spiritual book I read and it says, when you're in your Lucifer self, your ego self, and you make a choice, it can still bring you back to God. It can still bring you to the light. It can still bring you back home. And that's where I find peace with these types of stories is there can, you shouldn't, you should not go to regret of should have done this, shouldn't have done that, because no matter the choice, it can bring you to God. It can bring you to self-growth. It could bring you to that next level of a higher self. And for you, that happened. You're a warrior mama now. And no matter yeah. what you would have chosen, it would have brought you to that growth. Yeah, I appreciate that. Thank you. I mean, I know it's like overarching for everybody, but you know, I, I have obviously my youngest is now almost two. So um, I've had a lot of time to process this, but you know, that's, I like that, you know, that view on it. And I don't, I do catch myself sometimes thinking like, what if I had done this, but I am pretty at peace with the decisions, um, my ability to stand up for my son, you know, in the hospital, you know, my biggest regret is not stopping them, giving him those doses of antibiotics that he did and how that could potentially, you know, affect his gut biome and, you know, the downstream effects associated with those two doses, but try to just understand that, you know, I did the best I could in that moment. And again, I mean, I learned a lot of lessons being in that experience and I do, it did bring me to where I needed to be. And like you said, my mama bear and my, my mother energy where now I don't care, you know, in the times I, you know, do go to the pediatrician, um, you know, when they recommend something and I don't agree, I'm, I'm not afraid to say no. And when they try to treat me like I don't know what I'm talking about, I try not to go into appointments saying I'm a pharmacist. I try not to always pull that as like a card, but I will say, I know what you're saying is not true because I'm a pharmacist. So I'm not going to do that. Okay. And they're always like, oh, okay. I'm, I'm sorry. <laughs> oh my gosh. That'd be a sight, sight to see. 
<laughs> yeah, but I really appreciate you um, letting me come on the podcast and talk about my story. Um, yeah. Yeah. I, just, I hope yeah, that... that other women resonate. And I guess if I had to give someone advice who was going to go through, you know, a similar experience, maybe go, you know, think about do I transfer or do I not transfer? Is the hospital the right choice? Even beyond birth with, a, you know, a child being ill really just listening to that intuition. What do, what do you think? And I, as you said, it, it can be difficult to distinguish, but when you really are in those moments, if you listen, you'll hear. You'll hear that I need to go, I don't need to go, especially if you've been doing some of the work and um, just kind of understand the dynamics of going into the system as well. Prepare yourself, be ready, be very clear on what your expectations are when you're there. That it seems foolish that I'd have to say, I don't want any drugs. I don't want oxytocin. I don't want fentanyl. I don't want any of the things you need to be that clear. So be that honest and clear with your pediatrician. If you go with your own doctors, if you go your midwife, whoever you're dealing with, even a, you know, a birth keeper who isn't associated with the system. And most of them are pretty great about being really open and honest, but also what are, what are your expectations? What do you want from somebody who is going to support you in any aspect in life? Yeah. And I also want to touch on the NICU situation it sucks that going into the system can be literal war. And it was for you, right? Like your baby needed something, but you had to go to war because of it. And it just sucks. Like it, that's, it just, it is the way it is. And it's so horrible. But what happens a lot is, um, not a lot, I wouldn't say a lot, but medical kidnapping does happen with the NICU where they don't let you discharge. You, they don't let you make the choice of your own child. And that's where you said, I might be trauma bonded to this cardiologist because he let me discharge because a lot of parents aren't given that. And they they have to be there for weeks or fight really hard to get their own baby out. And yeah, and just hearing, you know, a couple stories of people who stood up in the hospital and had Child Protective Services called on them, you know, for child abuse because you wouldn't consent to abuse of your child I, I'm not that weird dynamic that they have so you know in my mind that's what I was thinking I needed I I needed that cardiologist to sign off on me so I I wasn't scared that someone was going to try to report me for child abuse like he gave me that peace of mind leaving the hospital because had I left AMA I know I would have been worried that they were going to attempt to try to report me for not following their guidance so guidance i say that in quotation yeah Origin, and, i should say yeah and that's why i think these stories are important because we i just want people to know that are dealing with these dynamics that it is abuse it is disrespect it is medical kidnapping if they keep your baby and you say no and these are the stories that are just kind of brushed under the rug but it happens all the time I was going to say, pay attention to the cues too, now that I think about it, because they kept saying like, you must be tired. We can take the baby to the nursery. And I was like, definitely not. I was afraid to even go to sleep. They had like a little bed and I was trying to, you know, sleep with him and nurse him like sideline nursing. And they're like, came in like, what are you doing? You can't sleep with your baby. You can't do that. I'm like, yeah, I can. I said, this is how he's going to nurse and I'm not doing anything different. So then they just kept coming in and checking on me and checking on me and checking on me like I was doing something so crazy because I was co-sleeping with my baby. Do you want to speak on anything about 
what you see in your job. I know, you know, you don't have to go so in depth. You can speak on that or because of your spiritual journey, like what about finding your intuition? Like as a mom for the first time versus now the third baby, like what about learning the voice of intuition? Because it is a journey. It is practice. Because at first we think the intuition is like anxiety or that worry, that fear. And that's not intuition. No, it's definitely not. I think it is definitely, you know, people talk about like, uh, I don't know, kind of feeling peaceful with the answer. And I know that, again, if you have an experience in that, it can be hard to relate to that. Um, But I am, I, I guess I'm, I'm, I'm like midway between quote, crunchy and like conventional. So I don't do the full vaccine schedule. I follow the vaccine schedule that we had as children. I don't do any of the new stuff, um, which is like a little bit different than some of the other guests you've had on the podcast, but having to stand up to them, knowing that that's like wrong, but like using my intuition as they're pushing and you know, me saying like, well, everyone gets it. And you know, I understand all the risks and the side effects, but me saying what feels right to me, to me, I feel okay with giving him an the MMR when he was one and some of the things as he got a little bit older me internally that I feel peaceful with that personal decision and I know not everyone who listens to this podcast or in life agrees with that but I feel okay with that I don't feel okay with all the other new ones and that feels like a a definite like a full body no you know, a full body no on giving the pneumonia vaccine. He doesn't need that. Like a full body no on the flu shot. Obviously, full full body no on you know the COVID vaccines. Same with you know a lot of the testing or you know even just going. Like I don't bring my older ones at all to the doctors anymore because to me that feels peaceful. Um, I they're not gonna attempt to find something wrong. Um, really thinking about my child also as a full human and a person and how I wanted to be treated. That's helped me also connect back to my intuition because I feel like how I was as a child was my intuition, how I felt and how I wanted to respond and how I wanted to be joyful and playful. That's really is me. That's, I feel like that is my inner voice. I mean, kids have egos as well too. I see it all, you know, I see their ego reactions and I hit somebody, but I feel like in general, they're coming from, they're making decisions more frequently from their intuition. So I'm having difficult moments with the children. You know, I try to think about that. How did I want to be treated? What what feels at peace to me? What feels like the right decision? My ego wants to control every second of every day with them. I want them to not be, they can play, but don't be too loud. You know, they can do that, but don't be too risky. Like I'm not a helicopter parent, but I feel myself like wanting to be careful, be careful. But I'm like, that's really not in alignment with my intuition that's definitely my ego and my fear trying to drive those decisions and project them out onto the kids yeah and feeling like a god like my friend and i were talking about this christian podcast that talks about how gentle parenting is unbiblical the way they talk about how like kids need to listen to the parent no matter what and what you say goes and you what you say no matter what the kids should respect and listen to That is a God complex of the ego. Like that is what the ego wants more than anything is to have that level of power and domination over something innocent. Oh my gosh, Kate, you actually just need to come on again. We need to like continue this conversation. Yeah, I could talk a lot now that we're talking. Like I have a lot to say about like my parenting. You know, I mean, we all have different, 
I feel like gentle parenting, conscious parenting all has kind of little bit different versions with different spins depending on where you're coming from. So yeah, I mean, if you're interested, I'd definitely love to come and talk more parenting and my transition and how I really got into gentle parenting, conscious parenting and, you know, my transition and how I am far from perfect right now as I attempt this journey. Let's let, yeah, let's do it because let's schedule another time because I want full conversations with parents. Yes. Yeah. So start writing your list, make a notes app and start writing your list of what you need to talk about. Okay. (laughs) Thanks Holly. (laughs) 